0: Welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and His followers from the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Luke chapter 14. Please get out your Bible and follow along. What are the conditions we must fulfill in order to be a disciple of Messiah Yeshua? How much commitment should we have and why is so much required? In the parable of the Great Supper, who were invited to the feast first? Why did they reject the invitation? And what should we learn not to do? What is the identity of those the master invited from among the poor, the blind, and the lame? And who does he invite after them to fill his house? Why should we focus on striving towards the high calling instead of just being content with our own salvation? When it comes to spiritual warfare, how much of a war-fighting mindset should we have? If we have enough faith, can the war still affect us? Won't God fight our battles for us and always keep the enemy away from us so that we never have to join him in the battle except to pray the demons away? Should that really be our goal? Or should we also be fully committed to completely defeating the enemy no matter the cost, just as he is? If we're afraid, we don't have what it takes to be a disciple. Does that mean that we should be discouraged or give up? Or is it possible to grow into it with Messiah's help as long as we stay committed and keep doing what he says when he tells us to do it? How can we also have Messiah's kingdom focus? Stay tuned throughout today's program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on these questions and more in Luke chapter 14. And now, here's today's scripture portion. Luke chapter 14 verse 1 through verse 35. It happened when Messiah went into the house of one of the rulers of the Perushim on a Shabbat to eat bread, that they were watching him. Behold, a certain man who had dropsy was in front of him. Yeshua, answering, spoke to the Torah scholars in Perishim, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Shabbat? But they were silent. He took him and healed him and let him go. He answered them, Which of you, if your son or an ox fell into a well, wouldn't immediately pull him out on a Shabbat day? They couldn't answer him regarding these things he spoke a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the best seats and said to them, when you are invited by anyone to a marriage feast, don't sit in the best seat, since perhaps someone more honorable than you might be invited by him, and he who invited both of you would come and tell you, make room for this person. Then you would begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may tell you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you make a dinner or a supper, don't call your friends, nor your brothers, nor your kinsmen, nor rich neighbors, or perhaps they might also return the favor and pay you back. But when you make a feast, ask the poor, the maimed, the lame, or the blind, and you will be blessed because they don't have the resources to repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who will feast in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man made a great supper, and he invited many people. He sent out his servant at supper time to tell those who were invited, Come, for everything is ready now. They all as one began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go try them out. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I can't come. That servant came and told his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. The servant said, Lord, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. The Lord said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of these men who are invited will taste of my supper. Now great multitudes were going with him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or perhaps, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees begins to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish! Or what king, as he goes to encounter another king in war, Will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an envoy and asks for conditions of peace. So, therefore, whoever of you who doesn't renounce all that he has, he can't be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes flat and tasteless, with what do you season it? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David with insight on Kingdom Focus.
1: Ask for the ancient parts, ask where the good way is, and walk in
2: it. Kingdom focus. Truly, focus is kind of a difficult issue these days because we've all got so much to deal with, plus the world is throwing so much at us all the time. But we really need to maintain that kingdom focus. And Yeshua had some really wonderful things to teach us about that. This is the thing that concerns me most about good people. You know, you can be a good person and you can love Yeshua Messiah. But over time, other things can capture your focus. And you don't even realize that it's happening, and it can really kind of change your focus, and you can slip away from the things that are most important very easily. And, of course, all of us are in the same boat. We all have to deal with the world, and that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? It's the world that wants to change our focus. Well, we're not going to go through everything in the chapter, but we want to notice that Yeshua was teaching at the feast on Shabbat. And he was primarily teaching the religious leaders that were gathered there for the supper. But, you know, he had a lot of people following him. So there may very well have been some of the more lowly folks that were there. Certainly we saw there was one person who was healed. Perhaps there were others like that that were there. And he used the very occasion of this supper as a way to teach us some very important lessons. So I may not stop at all of these things, and let's see what we've got here. Well, we we have the parable here where he's telling us when we're invited to a marriage, he's don't sit at the best seat.
3: And he's telling us that
2: this could be an embarrassment for us because if we sit in the best seat and then the master of the house says, well, you can't sit there because this other person I like better is sitting there. It's not going to make you look very good. That's basically what he had to say. And, in telling the folks there about this, he was kind of rewording or paraphrasing what Solomon had said in Proverbs 25. Very, very similar message, basically saying, don't exalt yourself in the presence of the king, because if you do that, you could end up being demoted in the eyes of others. Very similar kind of thing. And, you know, when you assess Messiah's parables, a lot of times you find this, that he's really reaching back into the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, the Torah. He's got a focus on the Scriptures that he brings into the things that he's saying. You know, to listen to many, you would think that everything that he said was a brand new thing. But of course... That wasn't his purpose, just bringing new things. He wanted us to understand what we already had in the Word. And a lot of it is helping us to understand that. Because, you know, in the first century, they had the same problem that many believers have today. They heard a lot of this stuff as stories. And so they didn't really see how they applied to their lives. It's kind of like you know, the little pictures we see of Noah and the ark and the giraffe up through the top and all of this doesn't look like it's very relevant to anybody's life. These religious stories and the scriptures can be like that to people too. And Yeshua brought real life into these parables so that we could see how relevant they really are to us. And then of course, he added on beyond what had said. And all to make this point, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We don't need to promote ourselves. That's what you say. You know, a lot of people put a lot of effort into that, into promoting themselves. And we don't really need to do that, because if we humble ourselves, Before Messiah, He will promote us in due time. And that's what He says.
3: This story
2: led him into another story. Here, He's talking about who you should invite as a guest. And this is really good talking about inviting the needy people, the poor the lame, the blind, the people who cannot repay you. And he says, you will be paid in the resurrection of the righteous. You know, in the Torah, Yahweh says that when you help the poor that can't help you, he considers it as a personal debt. Isn't that an amazing thing? What you give to those who can't help themselves. Yahweh sees that as a debt. I think that's amazing. So, you know, you never really lose anything. It's impossible in the kingdom to lose anything because our Father can outgive you all day long. So that whatever you give, you will receive so much more. You will be astounded in that day. That's just a fact.
3: So, at hearing this, somebody there was inspired, moved to say, Blessed is
2: he who will feast in the kingdom of Elohim. Wonderful sentiment, isn't it? Truly, it will be a blessing to feast in the kingdom of Elohim. However, Instead of just agreeing with the man, Yeshua starts out with the word, but. And you know, when you see that, what's it saying? But, hey, there's a problem here you're not seeing. That's what but means, right? But, there's something more to this. Because not everybody who would say, blessed is he who will feast in the kingdom of Elohim, we'll do what it takes to be in the kingdom of Elohim. That's the
3: big but. That's the big problem. In order to make his point about that, he tells us this
2: parable of a great supper, where a certain man made a great supper and he invited many people. He sent out his servants at supper time to tell those who were invited, Come, for everything is ready now. There's so much in this little statement. You know, when Messiah came into the world, it was a great supper. It was spiritual food like nobody ever heard before, like nobody ever saw before.
3: It was a supper for Israel, a feast for the Spirit. And he sent out his servants, the 12, the 70,
2: to tell those who were invited, come for everything is ready now. And you know we encounter the Pharisees and the religious leaders a lot, right? They were being invited to come. The others were being invited too, but This is kind of focusing on them. On the people who were sitting at the dinner table with him, essentially. And so, from that perspective, in the parable, it's these important people, the leaders, that got the first invitation. Because after all, who is the most worthy to receive all this? They're the religious leaders, right? So... They're the ones that are keeping all the roles, all the traditions. Shouldn't they be the ones who are first? So that's one way of seeing it, and that's why in the parable they're presented as first. Certainly everybody at the table would have thought that. Well, then what? Well, when they're invited, they're told that everything is
3: ready now. And what happened?
2: They all as one began to make excuses. You know, it's very interesting that people aren't ready now. Almost never. (laughs) You can wait for things. You can wait for things. You say, oh, it'll be so great when that happens. And then all of a sudden it happens. And you feel like, hey, wait a minute now. I'm not quite ready for that. All of the religious leaders believed the Messiah was going to come. They all believed it was going to bring about a wonderful change for Israel. But then when he showed up, what
3: happened? Hold on a minute. I'm not ready for
2: that. So he has some examples here of some of the excuses. We have the man who bought a field which reminds us of this common excuse, really something that destroys the kingdom focus of people when they are focusing on wealth rather than focusing on the kingdom. And then we have this man who wants to try out his five yoke of oxen. Well, many people have an occupation with something else other than the kingdom, and that can take their focus off of the kingdom. So they make excuses and they say no. And then, of course, we have the person who's married, who uses that as an excuse And so many times. It's really our family, our relatives, our friends, who truly are more important to us.
3: Than he is. And he's pointing that out as part of the excuses.
2: So after hearing all these excuses, the servant came and he tells his master, and the master got
3: angry. You know, this happens. See what happens sometime. When
2: somebody, maybe your wife, maybe somebody else, cooks dinner, puts a lot of work into it to make it perfect, it's all ready, puts out the word, it's all ready, and
3: people are just too busy to come, and they don't come. Do you think that person who made all that is justified to be angry? I do.
2: I think so. I think if somebody puts that kind of effort into wanting to do something for others, they're rightfully angry if others who should respond don't respond. And that's what happens here. So this prompts the master of the house. Now, remember, everything's ready, right? Everything's ready. So it's a timing issue, too. So they don't come, the ones who should have came. So he says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame, which, by the way, are just the people that
3: Yeshua Messiah was healing, right? And apparently they came. Why do you think they came where the religious leaders didn't come? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? They had needs. You know, I believe that we should put
2: Messiah first, but he doesn't despise us because we come to him because we have needs. For most of us, that's where it
3: starts, right? We have needs that we cannot fulfill ourselves. And even the world cannot help us with some things. And so it brings us to a point where we are humbled and we cry out
2: to our Father in heaven and he illuminates our mind. And that's how most people come into the kingdom,
3: isn't it? Through their needs.
2: So this is what happened. A remnant of more lowly Israel was then called. All of these lowly ones that Messiah was teaching, healing, and setting
3: free. So that was great, but you know what? There was still room. This is a big supper, friends. This is a big supper. You know,
2: I've been working on eating this supper for decades. I'm nowhere near the end of it. This is a big supper.
3: So we need more people to share in all of this.
2: So, the word is, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be
3: filled. There it is. The invitation went out to everybody.
2: People who didn't start out in the covenant. You know, all the people Messiah he spoke to For the most part, they were all covenant people, weren't they? They were all part of the covenant. Now, Yeshua is saying, This is what's going to happen. The word is going to go out to all kinds of people. Anybody that will come
3: can come to the supper. Why? Because the Master says, My house will be filled. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe he's going to be compelling
2: people to come in to his kingdom. Even if it takes the Antichrist and demons walking on
3: the face of the earth to make it happen.
2: There will be a final harvest of the earth. And many people will be so distressed by the things they see in this world. They will be so full of anxiety and fear because of what is coming upon the earth that all kinds of people that we could not even imagine right now will be coming into the kingdom. We'll see that happen. That will
3: happen. But what about those religionists who should have been the first
2: ones to sign up? Yeshua says, I tell you that none of those men who were invited will taste of my supper.
3: Do they deserve it? They don't deserve it. Amazing. It's an amazing parable. It
2: tells us now as it goes along that multitudes were going with him. So there were lots of other people. And perhaps this story really rang home with some of them. But this is what he said to these multitudes. He said, Everybody close your eyes because we don't want to embarrass anyone. And if anyone would like to be saved from hell and be able to go to heaven, put your hand
3: up. Now, don't anybody look because you might embarrass somebody. Is that what Yeshua did? Why do people do this kind of stuff? What Yeshua said to these
2: multitudes was exactly the opposite of what I just said, isn't it? If anyone comes to me and does not disregard his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he can't be a part of my cult. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. He can't be my disciple.
3: Isn't that what we think, what our culture thinks of people who actually do this? Oh, you're a part of a cult. Because it's okay
2: to say you believe in Jesus. It is okay to be part of a religion if it's just compartmentalized as part of your life and doesn't really affect anything you do.
3: But as soon as you decide
2: that you want to actually be a disciple and follow Messiah, which means exactly what he says here,
3: even putting him ahead of your
2: own family, even putting him ahead of your own self, well, now you're a fanatic.
3: You know, some people are just now coming to realize this
2: and are struggling with it. Myself, you know what? This has been a settled issue for me for a very long time.
3: Very long time. And it's a
2: decision I made. It is my decision. I have kept my focus on that decision it continues to be my decision because I have deemed being a disciple of Yeshua Messiah as being the very most important thing that I can do with my life. And I also think, and by the way, you probably all know I've left family members behind. In fact, I've left so many people behind, I probably couldn't even name
3: them all anymore. Because I'll tell you why I left them behind. Because I was moving forward and they were standing still. They don't want to follow, they want to be comfortable lay back in their lazy boy, and let the televangelist do the work, or whatever.
2: So, I'm telling you, I don't care who that is, even somebody that I love dearly, as long as I've got breath to do this, I'm moving forward. So if they're going to stay behind, that's on them, not on me.
3: That's how I see that. It's not that I dislike my family. That's not what he's really saying. Of course, you love your family. I love my family. However,
2: he's got to be first. That's what he's saying. It's unequivocal. That's what a disciple is somebody that puts
3: him first. And then
2: he says this, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple.
3: That is the most unchristian thing I've ever read. You know, the Christian idea is that he died on the cross, so you don't have to. But what about all of
2: the disciples who gave their lives for Messiah? What about all the disciples who were actually put on crosses in Rome and lit on fire by Nero to light the city of Rome? What about them?
3: What about the believers in the Middle East whom ISIS
2: attacked, persecuted, beheaded in some cases? And the many others who were simply
3: driven away by all the violence. Could that happen to you? Could that happen in your life? Of course it could happen. It could happen. And why
2: is Yeshua telling us about it? Isn't he telling us about it? Full disclosure, this is what it is to be a disciple. If you're, going to be, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be like me. That's what he's saying. If you want to follow me, you've got to be like me. Now, it doesn't mean you're all on your own because he's there with you. There is no disciple of Yeshua Messiah who ever went to the cross, who ever faced down the enemies of the kingdom who did not have Yeshua Messiah right there
3: with them as they went through it. And this is the thing that's different. Because when he went through it, where were we?
2: So while he says that all can come, he says that all must meet the conditions of discipleship. Here's a quote from the Believer's Bible commentary about this. And, you know, I just find this so interesting because we do have these Christian commentaries, such as this one, that do tell the truth about this. And yet, most Christians never read a commentary. All they ever hear is what they hear in their church, and they're not really hearing this message. But here's what the Believer's Bible Commentary says. Not all believers bear the cross. It is possible to avoid it by living a nominal Christian life. But if we determine to be all out for Christ, we will experience the same kind of satanic opposition which the Son of God knew when he was here on earth. This is the cross. The disciple must come after Christ. This means that he must live the type of life which Christ lived when he was here on earth, a life of self-renunciation, humiliation, persecution, reproach, temptation, and contradiction of sinners against himself. That doesn't sound
3: like the prosperity gospel, does it? Who would do that? Who would choose that? Only a person
2: would choose that and follow that path if they had a real love in their heart for Messiah, if they truly appreciated who he is and what he's done for us. Only that kind of person would do it. Only a person who is committed to that path come what may. And, you know, it's okay if you have a little fear about that. This is big, what we're talking about. But we know that he will be there with
3: us if we make him our focus and we come after him in his footsteps.
2: Well, here's how Messiah put this for us about being a disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or perhaps when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, everyone who sees begins to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. You see, I just see here in the Gospels that Yeshua Wanted to give us full disclosure as to what it means to be a disciple. And I respect that so much.
3: He has great demands. Don't you think these are great demands?
2: Basically everything in your life. That's what he's demanding. He's not trying to make it easier for us. Did you notice that? In giving us this, he's saying instead, you have to think about these demands of being a disciple and you have to make a real decision about it. This is not something you do for your family. This is not something you do so that you can be part of a group that will help you network for your business. This is something that you have to
3: think about, and come to grips with. Essentially, where you get with this is, is he worth this to you or not? Is he worth it or not? You know,
2: my struggle with this many years ago was that I believed he was worth it. I just doubted myself. I doubted
3: that I would be able to do it. Maybe you feel like that. Because I knew myself too well, <laughs> right? I knew some things made me afraid.
2: I knew sometimes I procrastinated. Sometimes I had some problems understanding certain things. And so I was really concerned that as much as I loved him, as important as he was, maybe I wouldn't be able to
3: do it. So what I said to him is, if you will never leave me, then I'm going to give it my best shot. That's what I do every day. I don't have this thing perfect yet, but I'm going for it every day. He's my focus. He's my focus because he's worth it. And, you know, that's a pretty good way of approaching that problem, by the way. Because what you find is that when you take that step forward on that condition, he's always there. I don't worry about that. I will never die alone. I'll never do anything alone. Because he is always there. He has this parable
2: that he brings up. Or what king, as he goes to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Why is he talking about a king and going to war?
3: Don't you know that we're all going to be kings? Don't you understand that we're kings in training? Don't you know that we're all soldiers? Our enemy challenged our father. And there's been a war going on ever since. We should think about war and how you handle war. So
2: this is what the king has to think about.
3: There's another king,
2: and he's at war with the first king. And so what does the king do? Well, he has to consider the situation. War is a real thing, right? And we have a lot of veterans out there who are missing limbs, who I have been through war and missing friends,
3: suffering even now, war injuries. War is a very real thing. There's a lot of death and pain connected with war. And when you're looking at
2: war, you really got to think about what you're doing. So here we have 20,000 coming after us, and we've got 10,000. What do you do? Well, he says, or what king, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an envoy and asks for conditions of peace. Okay, so you've got two things you can do. You can decide we're going to fight,
3: or we're going to surrender. Is there an in-between thing you can do? The army is coming your way. There's no in-between thing, friends. The war is ongoing all the time, whether the bombs are falling or not.
2: There is no in-between. Disciples are soldiers, and they need to be at war all the time have to have a mental attitude of war, dealing with warfare. And what it requires, warfare, you're either going to commit yourself completely to winning the war, or you should just surrender. Because
3: any army that goes to war and is not
2: fully committed to win, will not win. I learned that because of what happened with a lot of my friends in Vietnam. Here we had the greatest military on the face
3: of the earth, right? And a bunch of people out in the jungle were able to beat us. Why? Commitment.
2: The commitment wasn't there. The commitment of the country was not there to win the war. The other side, it was their country, their homes, their
3: families. They were committed. And so their smaller group, their less likely group, won the war. That's how war works. Have you ever heard of the
2: Battle of Thermopylae? 300 Spartan soldiers held off a million Persians. They found a spot where only a relative few people could come through, the passive Thermopylae. And those Spartans were determined that those Persians weren't coming through. And they fought for days until finally they were betrayed. And some of the Persians were able to come around behind them and surround them
3: and overwhelm them. However,
2: the precious days where they held off the Persians was enough for the rest of the Greeks to get their act together
3: and come back to defeat the Persians. Commitment in war is everything. It's everything. That's really the whole point here.
2: Well, sometimes we have examples of people who don't have that mentality. Sometimes it would surprise you when you think of some of the people in scriptures who. Don't really have that warlike mentality. For instance, we have here the example of King Hezekiah. Now, here's the thing about King Hezekiah. Of course, he was in the line of David, he was a Judean king, and he was a good guy. He loved Yahweh. And in fact, he restored true worship. He had a you know, a great revival and restoration of true worship. And Yahweh saved him
3: from certain enemies that had come against him. And he was a man of faith, real faith. So Hezekiah was sick. And
2: while he was sick, the word got out, because after all, he was a king, right? Now, here's how it works in that world.
3: I'm talking the geopolitical world. Everything is important to world leaders. They're watching everything. And they're finding out that this king is sick. So, they're thinking, hmm, is there some way this could be to our advantage? You see, they were at war. They were always at war. But they weren't showing their hand.
2: So what they did, at that time, Baradak, Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So what a nice guy, right? The king of Babylon, hears about Hezekiah was sick, sent him a nice letter, sent him a gift. That doesn't sound like war, does it? To me, it absolutely sounds like
3: war. The Babylonians, <laughs> right there, are at war because they're trying to get an advantage. So what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah is a man of faith. He's not worried about anybody. So he
2: listened to them. And, you know, they were such nice people, and they gave him a nice gift and everything. He showed them all the house. Of his precious things. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah didn't show them.
3: What do you think of that? Well, you know this is the kind of stuff that happens to people of faith. Satan uses that against us because we're nice people. We don't think like those people do,
2: right? Somebody gives you a gift. You don't think, oh, they're trying to get some advantage over me. You think, oh, what a nice thing. This person gave me a gift.
3: Do you understand what I'm saying? You have to understand that the world is not like the kingdom. They're not doing things just to be nice to people. They have a reason in everything they're doing.
2: Their reason is they're at war. So... The scriptures constantly tell us, have your armor on, be at war. But a lot of times we don't listen to that because we just want to be nice. And I like being nice just as much as anybody. But look at what happened to Hezekiah because he was being so nice. This is what happened. Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? From where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They've come from a far country, even from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among all my treasures that I've not shown them. Must have made them feel great, showing all the treasures of Israel to these Babylonians. And, you know, he was probably glorifying God for all of it, right? He was probably telling them, oh, well, you know, our God Yahweh is so good to us, and he's given us all these treasures. He's protected us. He's doing all these good things for us. Praise his
3: name. And it's wonderful to praise Yahweh. But... Is that good warfare? Because what were they thinking while he's showing them all the treasures? Were they thinking, oh, I'm going to praise Yahweh for this now? They're thinking, wow, look at all of this loot. Now we're going to go home and figure out how we can get all of it. Isn't that what they're thinking? They're at war
2: before Hezekiah even knew they were at war. And he threw the doors open for them and just let them come in. I think we do that sometimes. You know, in our spiritual war with Satan, I think we don't care enough about Satan sometimes. Because like Hezekiah, We have faith. We think Yahweh's going to take care of us. And so we just open the doors and let him walk
3: in. This is not the way to handle war. Well, this is what
2: Isaiah said to Hezekiah. Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. Of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall father, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. See, there has to be absolute resistance to the enemies of the kingdom, or else you end up with surrender simply because you didn't understand there's a war going on. That's what happened to Hezekiah. He was not a bad guy. (laughs) But when it comes to war, it's either total commitment, or it ends up being surrender. And I think it's so interesting where Yahweh had protected Hezekiah in the past. But you see, it's when he had directed Hezekiah, and he said, I'm going to take care of this, so you just wait. But does that mean
3: that's how Yahweh does it every time? It isn't. We're soldiers. We have to fight the war.
2: That's how it usually is. We have to fight the war. So we have to be... Aware, we have to have a focus on what we're doing. I think shame on Hezekiah because he was the king of the nation. He should have been really watching for the wolves, shouldn't he? Isn't that his job as the king of the nation? He should have been watching for the wolves. So even though he was a good man, a man of faith, in many ways, a man to be proud of, he was too nice in this particular occasion that was was his problem and it didn't end up good for the nation so focus we have to keep our kingdom focus we have to protect the things that belong to the kingdom those things that are most important we can't be distracted by others we have to make good decisions
3: about it therefore
2: whoever of you who doesn't renounce all that he has, he can't be my disciple. See, it takes
3: laser-like focus on the target, on the goal. And Messiah has to
2: come absolutely first. This is kingdom focus. One aim, regardless of the cost. Like once you commit yourself You've got to be all in. That's really what he's saying. And you know, isn't that who he was? Isn't that who Messiah was? When he committed himself to come here to this earth, knowing what it was going to take, did he not have laser-like focus? And he knew who his enemies were. He was sitting at the table with them. And he dealt with them with wisdom. He knew who he wanted to reach with his teaching. He knew exactly what he was doing in setting the foundation for the kingdom. I find him so amazing that in three and a half years, he could accomplish what he did. It was absolutely astounding, and no doubt a large part of it is because of his kingdom focus. Certainly, if we're coming after him, we can really learn from that.
3: Well, then, he gives us this warning.
2: Salt is good, but if the salt becomes flat and tasteless, with what do you season it? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, in this parable... The worth of the
3: salt is the taste. And the worth of the disciple is his commitment. Commitment is a huge thing. You know, determination to follow through is a huge thing. Well, to sum this up, I just want
2: to point to what the Apostle Paul said about his own life. I have great respect for the Apostle Paul because he was the kind of man I'm talking about. From the time that Messiah called him till the end of his life, he had one focus, just one focus on Messiah. And he explains it in the book of Philippians he says, however, what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss for Messiah. Yes, most certainly, and I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Messiah Yeshua, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them nothing but refuse that I may gain Messiah and be found in him. So,
3: Paul left everything behind. Those who had formerly loved him now hated him. And he constantly was facing loss. But he had counted the cost. And he had determined that he
2: could easily let it go for Messiah. He says that I may gain Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that which is according to rules of religion. Now, in many Bibles right there, it's going to say the Torah. So how come I have rules of religion? Because they always get that wrong when they put Torah there. It's the word nomos, the Greek word nomos, and it means customs, traditions, and laws. So it can mean the torah, you have laws in the torah, sometimes it does. But it can mean customs and
3: traditions and rules. That's
2: what Paul was actually talking about because that was what his struggle was with, right? He came out of a false religion where he was under the rules of pharisaism. And that's the reason why he lost everything. Because when he left Phariseeism, all the status he had there was lost to him. It wasn't because of the Torah that happened. It was because of that religion. So in this particular case, a better translation of the word nomos would be rules of religion rather than the Torah. But that which is through faith in Messiah, our righteousness is through faith in Messiah, not religion. The righteousness which is from Elohim by faith.
3: Religion is like a hamster wheel. Trying to
2: attain righteousness by following the rules of religion. It's like being on a hamster wheel and you can never stop. It's Horrible.
3: Take my word for it, I know. That's not real righteousness anyway. Real righteousness
2: is through faith in Messiah. Through faith in Messiah, we're really changed on the inside. We don't have to do that thing. We instead have it happen inside of us. We are changed to become the children of the living God, through Messiah. That's what he's talking about. And here's more of the treasures that he received. That I may know him. Wow. To know
3: Elohim. What a treasure. Amazing treasure. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. It's the power that energizes us in serving him. Resurrection power. Resurrection power. It's a real thing. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Wow. See, when we go through trials, when we go through sufferings for his name's sake, he's there with us. There is a fellowship in our sufferings with his suffering for the sake of the kingdom together. You know,
2: soldiers who go to battle together Often develop a bond with one another unlike any other bond in the world and have a love for one another that other people can't even understand. When we become soldiers with our leader, Yeshua Messiah, for the kingdom, and we have fellowship with him in the sufferings of Messiah, it forms a bond
3: a bond with him that is more
2: comforting than anything that can be described by human language. Becoming conformed to his death,
3: that is, through his death,
2: allowing our old man to be put to death so that his life can shine through us if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead.
3: Not that I've already obtained, or I'm already made
2: perfect. Now this is really interesting, I think, because it is so different than the theology of many people. Because, you know, the general thinking is that once saved, always saved. And because of the way they've got the theology stacked up, what that would mean is that he's talking about the resurrection there and everything. So, saying he's not already made perfect, that he's not already obtained it, is saying he's not saved. That's what a lot of people would see that as saying. It's not what
3: he's saying. It's not. It's that he has a goal beyond
2: mere salvation. His goal is beyond mere salvation. And that goal he had not yet obtained. That goal that was beyond mere salvation. And this is what he's talking about when he says, but I press on that I may take hold of that for which also I was taken hold of by Messiah Yeshua. You see that
3: drive, that focus after the goal?
2: Brothers, I don't regard myself as yet having taken hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of Elohim, in Messiah Yeshua.
3: The high calling.
2: See, there's something else that goes beyond mere salvation. There's the resurrection of the righteous, and Yeshua says that that happens at the great white throne judgment. Revelation says the great white throne judgment happens at the end of the thousand-year reign. The people in the great white throne judgment, who are judged worthy of life, will have eternal life on the earth. Wonderful thing.
3: However, Paul is stretching
2: forward towards the first resurrection. The one that happens at the beginning of the thousand years.
3: That's the high calling
2: in Messiah Yeshua. This is the calling not only into the kingdom and having an eternal life, but to rule and reign in the kingdom with Yeshua Messiah.
3: Just being saved doesn't get you that. That's a
2: reward for doing the things that Messiah is talking about here. Truly being a disciple. Putting Messiah first, ahead of everything else. And walking that walk, pressing forward towards that goal. That is who Paul was. That's what he is encouraging us to do. He says, let us therefore as many as are perfect, Think this way. Now, when he says perfect, he doesn't mean that in the absolute sense. He means those who are complete in Messiah, who have maturity to understand these distinctions. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, Elohim will also reveal that to you. So this last statement, it's because we're all growing. You know, just like Hezekiah, he was a great guy, great king, but you know, he he just didn't see something that was really important. Some of us, we do that too. We all do, in fact. There's things we're not seeing right now. And we're growing, right? That's what Paul is talking about. You know, you don't have to be perfect in that sense of knowing everything and doing everything exactly perfect to be part of his people, he can change us. He can help us to grow. He can help us to understand. And that's what Paul is saying can happen. So we don't want to be discouraged because this message is such a powerful message. We don't want to be discouraged. Well, gee, I can't do that or whatever. No, because with Messiah with us, we can grow fully into what we're called to be. You know, we don't all start at the top. We start at the bottom, and we go up from there. That's really how it works. And he's there with you. He will be there with you as you progress along. So don't let any of this make you feel discouraged, but on the other hand, be encouraged by it
3: and motivated to make him first in your life you can do it it just takes everything and this is not a great deal that's kingdom
2: focus
0: You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. The scripture verses referenced in today's program are Luke chapter 14, Proverbs 25 verse 6 through verse 7, 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 12 through verse 18, Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 through verse 15, and Revelation chapter 20. Further Teachings and Study Materials on Being Disciples or Talmudim of Messiah Ministry Service How to Put Messiah First Messiah's Kingdom The Remnant of Israel Growing in Your Spiritual Walk with Messiah Hezekiah, Isaiah and Other Biblical Figures Spiritual Warfare and the History of the War Paul and His Ministry how Paul and others used the Torah as a weapon to fight the war, the hope of the resurrection of the righteous, the high calling, the book of Revelation, the thousand-year reign, the great white throne judgment, and what Bible prophecy tells us about the work that God is doing in our generation, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free! just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! Would you like to hear more of Eliyahu's teachings? Do you have a question or prayer request and would like to get in touch with one of our volunteers for help? Or do you just want to know more about Eliyahu Ben David and Zion ministry? Visit our website at zion.org where you can listen to more teachings from Eliyahu Ben David straight from the homepage of our website. Check out our books, DVDs, internet videos, and other social media outlets. Learn more about Eliyahu and the Zion team on the About page. See what our ministry's mission is on the Remnant Vision page. Send a question or prayer request from our Contact Us page. Or click Join Us in the menu bar to learn about our community site Zion Tabernacle. To find out more about Zion ministry, go to zion.org. That's zion.org spelled T S I. Y-O-N dot O-R-G In my
1: darkest hour.